0: We're going to start with a question. I do that occasionally, you know. Have you ever had the privilege of hosting a slumber party for teenage girls? Norman, I did once. You notice I said that emphatically once. I won't say it was the dumbest thing that we ever did, but I will emphatically tell you that it was not one of our most brilliant moments. At some point in the night, I don't remember exactly when, but at some point I'd had enough and I went to bed. And I was awakened from a sound sleep because of an intense burning sensation all over my face. They had come into my bedroom and covered my face with Noxema medicated skin cream. Father, you and Liza might not be listening to this. I scolded them and I went back to sleep. I woke up a little later with a very cool sensation all over my face. I found out that red tempera paint is cool to the touch of the skin. I also found out that red tempera paint doesn't come out of blue sheets. And it's not easy to get off your face at 3 o'clock in the morning. Earlier in the evening, these girls had decided that they would make some prank phone calls. Thankfully, this was long before the days of caller ID, so the people had no clue what number they were being called from. They called a convenience store and they asked the clerk that answered the phone, do you have Prince Albert in a can? Yes, we do. Well, you better let him out before he suffocates. They called Kentucky Fried Chicken. One of the people answered the phone. Kentucky Fried Chicken, may I help you? Do you have chicken legs? Yes, we do. If you wear long pants, nobody will notice. Well, I was thinking about that one day. And it brought to mind a film, an old film from 1965. I have no recollection of those years, but I've heard the older folk talk about the 1960s. The film came from producer and director William Castle. The film starred Andy Garrett and Sarah Lane as two young girls. And it seems that they were making an evening of prank phone calls that went horribly awry. They called a homicidal maniac and spoke to him the words that were the title of the film. They got this homicidal maniac on the phone. They said, I saw what you did, and I know who you are. John Ireland played the part of the homicidal maniac. And he had just murdered his wife. The girls' parents were miles away. And the girls were alone in a big remote farmhouse. And so that set the stage for some very creepy suspense when the killer came calling these girls who would made the prank phone calls now I want you to think about those words for a moment I saw what you did and I know who you are does that not describe the all seeing eye of Jehovah, Could God not say to me and to you at every turn in our lives, I saw what you did, and I know who you are. In unmistakable language, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount that the Father sees what we do. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus tells His disciples to do their alms in secret. And he goes on to tell them that the Father that seeth in secret will reward them openly. In that same chapter, he goes on in verse 18 and gives them instructions on fasting. That they are not to fast openly for the praises and the appearances of men. But they are to fast and to pray in secret. And it's to be done quietly. Quietly. And the Father will then reward them openly. Jesus is simply telling us that the all-seeing eye of God is watching us. And that the all-seeing eye of God is aware of everything that we do. And he further instructs the disciples that they don't need to be anxious about the needs of life. He tells them the Heavenly Father knows the needs of man. When I think of the all-seeing eye of God, a very meaningful passage comes to mind. That's from 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 7. The Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For the man looketh on the outward appearances, but the Lord looketh upon the heart. And you recognize that passage immediately, don't you? That passage is the explanation of why God chose David to be king over Israel rather than one of David's more impressive older brothers. Because after all, if you read the text, David's older brother, brothers were much more impressive specimens. And yet if outward appearances were all that were necessary, then Saul would have been a wonderful king over Israel. Because First Samuel 9 verses 2 and 3 tells us that Saul was a choice young man. That he was tall and good looking. But yet as we see Saul in his life and as time goes on, we see that Saul was afflicted with heart trouble. His heart was never right before God. That passage that explains the selection of David is a passage that brings hope to me personally. Simply because that I have several mirrors at home. Now, I've been to Walmart. And evidently there are a lot of people that don't have mirrors. Because you go to Walmart and I see some of the people there and I think, you, don't, you must not have a mirror. Surely you didn't stand in front of a mirror dressed like that say, like, well, I'm ready. And leave home. I just can't believe it. But I have these mirrors at my house. And I I have seen my reflection in those mirrors. And I realize if the inspired writers of the Scriptures were to describe me, tall and good-looking would not necessarily be the adjectives that would be appropriate. Well, maybe the good-looking, but not the tall part, okay? Here's the thing. We have more than just this passage in 1 Samuel. Throughout the Bible, we have examples of God looking at people, and God does not see them as they are. God sees them for what they could be. God looks at us. God looks at you and God looks at me. And God sees our imperfections and God sees our sin But in the midst of all of that, God sees something else. God sees our possibilities. And God is able to use us because of our possibilities and in spite of our infirmities and in spite of our imperfections. Way back in the long ago, there was a man by the name of Moses. You read about it in Exodus 3 and 4 where God called him. Moses was probably one of the most unlikely people you would ever choose to lead a revolution. When God called Moses, he's 80 years old, he's a tongue-tied shepherd, minding his father-in-law's sheep on the backside of nowhere. And out of a burning bush, God appears unto Moses. And He says, Moses, you're going to go to Pharaoh. And you're going to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses says, God, who am I? Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? He said, God, I'm not eloquent. I'm slow of speech. I'm of a slow tongue. God said, I'm going to be with you. And you're going to do it. So this 80-year-old tongue-tied shepherd goes to Pharaoh and he leads a revolution And he leads God's people out of bondage in in Egypt. And for 40 years, till he's 120 years old, he's God's man leading the children of Israel. He had his faults. He had his imperfections. But God saw his possibilities. And God used him. Do you recall when Jesus Christ Was first introduced to Peter. It's in the Gospel according to John, chapter 1. Andrew and John had just spent the day with Jesus. You see, they had been walking along with John the Baptist. And John the Baptist saw Jesus. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sins of the world. And Andrew and John went and followed Jesus. They said, Master, where where dwellest thou? And Jesus said, Come and see. And so they went home with Jesus. And they spent the day with Him. And Andrew went and found his brother Simon and, and brought him to Jesus. And when Andrew brought Simon to Jesus, Jesus took one look at him and said, Thou art Simon. Thou shalt be called Cephas. That's to say, you're going to be a stone, He said. Oh, my goodness. The Simon of John chapter 1 is a long way from the stone he's going to sometime be. Peter acted nobly sometimes, to be sure. And Peter acted quite basely sometimes. No doubt about it. But the one constant was that Peter always acted impulsively. When he caught that great draught of fishes that time over in Luke chapter 5, he fell down at the feet of Jesus and said, Depart from me, O Lord, I'm a sinful man. That night in Gethsemane, when the soldiers came to take Jesus away, Simon drew his sword and he lopped off the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. And then just a few hours later, he's warming himself by the fire and three times denies Jesus and the third time denied Him with cursing and swearing and all kinds of oaths. And then after Jesus was crucified and the tomb was empty, over in John chapter 20, what do you read about? You read about Peter and John racing to the tomb to see the empty tomb. By the way, John won the race. He got there first. But he's impulsive. Later on, he says to the others, he said, I'm going fishing. And they go with him. And they're out in a boat on Galilee, and they see a fire on the shore, and they see a figure by the fire. And someone says, it's the Lord. And Peter throws off his cloak and dives into the water, impulsively to swim toward shore for the Master. Look at Peter. What faith, what doubt. What weakness, what strength. What courage, what cowardice, what impetuous love. All of that was wrapped up into one person. Fifty days after he denied Jesus, he comes back and he's the great preacher of Pentecost. What did Jesus say? Thou art Peter, thou shalt be called Cephas. He became a rock-like character. For the first century church. Read the book of Acts. Read the two letters that bear His name. And His strength shows forth. And you see, when Jesus looked at Him, He didn't see Him for what He was. Jesus saw Him for His potential and what He could be. And we see that Peter became what Jesus said He would be. Or then there's Acts chapter 9. There's this man named Saul who's breathing out threatenings and slaughters. He's on his way to Damascus with letters from the chief priests. He's going to persecute Christians like he's done everywhere. He's the man who stood by and held the clothes of those that stoned Stephen to death. And he's got letters... If he finds Christians, he can bring them back to Jerusalem in manacles and shackles and chains. But on the way, a great light shined around down on him. It not blinded him and it knocked him to his knees. And when he was on his knees blinded, he said, He heard this voice. The voice said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And he replied, Who art thou, Lord? I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. What did he say? What would you have me do, Lord? He said, go into the city and there it will be told you what you should do. And he goes into the city. And God spoke to a preacher by the name of Ananias and said, I want you to go to Damascus and I want you to inquire at a certain house for a man named Saul. He's praying. And Ananias had heard about Saul. He said, Lord, I've heard about this man. He basically said, Lord, isn't there somebody else that can go do this? Lord, I've heard about this guy. I've heard about what he does. I don't want to go. The Lord said, you go. Because he is a chosen vessel. God didn't see Saul the persecutor. He saw his potential. And he saw Paul the great preacher. In the gospel bearing his name, we see Jesus' first encounter with Matthew. In Matthew chapter 9, Here's the way that first encounter goes. It says, As Jesus passed forth, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom. Did you catch that? Jesus didn't see a publican, he didn't see a tax collector. He didn't see a man that was a traitor to his race. He didn't see a man that was a sinner. He says he saw a man named Matthew. Jesus saw Matthew. And he said, follow me. And he left everything and he followed Jesus Christ. That night, Matthew made a feast in his home. And he invited several of his friends. Well, now you think about this. The man's a publican. Who are his friends going to be? It's not going to be the the good religious people of the city. It's going to be other publicans. It's going to be other sinful people. But he invited them to this dinner in honor of Jesus. And oh my goodness, the Pharisees are scandalized by it. They're outraged by it. And they said to the disciples, Your Master is eating with publicans and sinners. He's eating with riffraff and the outcasts of society. Why would He do that? And here is what Jesus said in verses 12 and 13 of Matthew 9. They that behold need not a physician, but they that are sick. Go and learn what that means. I'll have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous. But sinners to repentance. I like the way Dr. Moffat puts that verse. Dr. Moffat says, I did not come to call the pious, but the irreligious. Jesus didn't see publicans and sinners, Jesus saw people. When Jesus looks at me and Jesus looks at you, He sees what we are and He sees us as people and He sees us as individuals and He sees what our potential can be. There's another tax collector named Zacchaeus over in Luke chapter 19. And it tells us there that Jesus is coming to the city. And Zacchaeus heard He was and so there's a big people lined up for this big parade to see Jesus coming through town and And Zacchaeus wants to see it, but he's short of stature. And he was not the most popular man in town. And so when he tries to get to the front of the liar crowd to see Jesus, they just elbow him out of the way. I can just see him put, get out of here. Nobody wants you around. So he runs on ahead of everything and he sees a sycamore tree. And he climbs to the top of that sycamore tree. And he's up in that sycamore tree and Jesus comes by. And Jesus looks up in that sycamore tree. He doesn't see a little bow-legged Jewish tax collector up there. He sees a man. He sees Zacchaeus. He says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm going home with you today. Like Matthew. Jesus did not see what Zacchaeus was. Jesus saw what Zacchaeus could become. And he went home with him. And the Scripture tells us that Zacchaeus, after his conversation with Jesus, he said, Lord, half of everything I've got, I'm going to give it to the poor. And he was a rich man, Dr. Luke tells us. And he said, Lord, if I've taken anything away from any man wrongfully, I'm going to restore it back to him fourfold. I'm going to give him four times what I took from him. Jesus saw his potential. In Job chapter 8, we see an adulterous woman that's brought to Jesus. And all these long-bearded Pharisees with their stones in their hand, they're ready to stone this woman. We caught her an adultery. We call her in the very act. Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground. He preached a 15-word sermon. Not a 15-minute sermon, a 15-word sermon. And then it tells us that after that 15-word sermon was over and those men... One by one, the oldest to the youngest dropped their stones to the pavement and fled. It says, Jesus saw no one but the woman. It doesn't say Jesus saw no one but the adulteress. It says, Jesus saw no one but the woman. Jesus saw past her sin. He saw past her current and present condition. And Jesus saw the woman who was before Him. And He said, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. At Jacob's well in John chapter 4, this stained woman of the community, woman who'd been married five times and was living with a man that was not her husband, a woman that dreaded the gaze of the other women in the community so much that she would come to the well in the heat of the day rather than have to talk to anybody. And she... Came to the well that day and Jesus was there. And Jesus asked her for a drink. And what did Jesus do? He said, you're a really sinful woman. He said, you know, I I really don't know if I'll even be talking to you. No, he didn't. Jesus told that woman all about living water. And when He told her about living water, she forgot her mission. She left everything. She left her water pots and she went into the city. Because she wanted to tell other people about Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't see a woman that was married five times and living with a man. Jesus saw a precious soul. He saw a soul in need of something only He could give. When Jesus looks at us, Jesus doesn't see our sin. Jesus doesn't see our imperfection. Jesus sees our possibilities. But here's the question. Are we living up to the potential that Jesus sees for us? There's a common denominator in the lives of every one of these people I've mentioned this morning. And you know what that common denominator is? They were willing to surrender their will to the will of God. That's where Saul of the Old Testament failed, and Saul of the New Testament succeeded. One started with a crown and ended with a cross of his own making. One submitted to a cross and was crowned in glory. Saul of the Old Testament failed through his stubbornness, and Saul of the New Testament succeeded through his submission. God sees the potential for greatness in every one of us. And it was because of that that he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins when we submit to that cross in obedience when in simple trusting faith we repent of everything that's sin in our lives we confess the name of Jesus Christ and we're buried in the waters of baptism when we do that and have submitted our will to the will of God and we become a Christian That's when we begin that process of making Jesus Christ the Lord and Master of our lives. That's what He wants. He wants us to submit our stubborn will to His will. Have you done that? Is Jesus Christ the Lord and the Master of your life this morning? If Jesus is not Lord and Master of all of your life, He's not Lord and Master at all in your life do you need to make changes if there are changes that need to be made for Jesus to be the Lord and Master of all of your life for you to reach the potential that God sees for you come let us help you let your desires be made known as together we stand and while we sing